4. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we started looking and examining worship. One of the passages that we read is Psalm 81, so we will look at that this morning, but we're going to begin again in John chapter 4. So, this is a series of messages uh, about the controversial Christ. And we started these uh, with Advent in the month of December. And uh, we won't finish on worship this morning. Perhaps we will finish it next Sunday morning. If not, it will be, it will roll in probably into March because there's quite a bit here. And I want to make sure that we give time to it. So we talked about the fact that uh, God interrupted the world with the incarnation. And through the incarnate Christ, he interrogated the world and still interrogates the world. He interrogates you and I uh, for the purpose of us understanding that his initiative is to seek and to save the lost. And he comes to seek and to save the lost to teach us how to worship. Not just to save us, but to teach us through that how to worship. Heaven is going to be one continual worship service. No heaven, I mean, no uh, day or night. We looked at a couple of passages in the book of Revelation last Sunday morning. If you don't enjoy worship, well, preacher, it's not going to be preaching. We don't know that. There's going to be a lot of preachers in heaven. And maybe the Lord says uh, somewhere down the line, Ernie, Preach for the next 10,000 years. All God's people said. <laughs> I don't know. We do know, obviously, that the purpose of our salvation is to restore uh, a worship that was lost in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were created in the image of God to fellowship and to worship. And so Jesus himself addressed it in a number of occasions. This is just one here in John 4. But the worship of the incarnate Christ is not only immaculate. In fact, the only immaculate worship will be in heaven. But it's instructive to those of us that are born again. If you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you can uh, be part and parcel of what's taking place, but worship is for God's children. There will be no worship in hell. There will be the absence of God in some fashion, although the memory of God will linger eternally. So as we look at this passage, and I'm not going to read it, uh, all of it this, again this morning, but I do want to look at verse 10, and then I want to uh, drop down again to verse 19. One of the things that uh, Jesus came to do, obviously, is to save. And if you, in verse 10, he told the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, we do not know her name. We know that she was essentially an outcast or considered an outcast by the Jews. And uh, she, Jesus asked a drink of water from her. She was at Jacob's well. And she immediately recognizes that he's a Jew, and he says in verse 9, Why do you ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Uh, 
And that was true. But the reason Jesus is here is to save her soul, her wretched soul, and to teach her about worship. And so in verse 10 he says, Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God. Now what's the gift of God? Eternal life. This is eternal life, Jesus prayed in John 17, that you may know the Father and he that sent me. That's eternal life. So there's a knowledge required here. And Jesus said, he said, if you knew the gift of God, and she experiences the gift of God later in the passage when she be becomes a believer, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. It's ours for the receiving. So, a lot of conversation that goes on in chapter 4, but drop down in verse 19. The woman said to him, and this is obviously after Jesus pointed out her sin. No one's ever saved, uh, not understanding the severity of our sin. No one. So, Jesus now, well, the woman said, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. He pointed out her sin. He'd been, she'd been mad five times. She was living with a man at that point. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. So she does a very human thing. I'm going to change the conversation. This is called in logical and debate terms a red herring. I'm going to throw up something else that will change the conversation, and he will move on. But Jesus is smarter than that. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. This is Mount Gerizim. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place that one ought to worship. So she doesn't like the conversation about something. No one, that includes me, no one likes sin to be pointed out in our lives. It's one of the reasons people avoid preaching. It's not the preacher. It's the message. So she says, that's where we ought to worship. But Jesus corrects her. Now the thing here is he confronts her. And he says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. And then he again points out the fact that she is ignorant, and that's what he said in verse 10, you would have asked me about the gift, but you're ignorant about the gift. And now he says again, you worship what you don't know. So how do you worship? You have no knowledge of who to worship. We know that we worship for salvation is of the Jews. So he's the Messiah, and we learn about that as we go through here. But the hour is coming. That's twice he's mentioned. The hour is coming in verse 21. And now again he says, the hour is coming. So that's a, that's a prophetic thing. It's not that the next hour. It's a general term used for time. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And the reason we do that is because the Father seeks in, uh, such to worship him. We don't worship of our own accord. We don't worship the God of the Bible of our own accord. 
there must be the movement of the Spirit. And that's what Jesus says, God's Spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth, in a rational way, truth, and in a spiritual way. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. Now, Jesus did precisely what he wanted to do. In the controversy that he was having with the woman, the Spirit of God moved in her heart. He's speaking of her human spirit. And so the Spirit is working in her heart. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And there's the latter part we'll cover perhaps next week or, uh, or in a week or two. But what I want you to see in this understanding of instructive worship is that there is a proper way to worship. And there's also an improper way. And this woman was worshiping improperly. And the sad fact is that all of us at one time or another have worshiped improperly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your Son, the Lord Jesus. By your Spirit, engage these words to speak to our hearts for those that are lost, save for believers. Encourage. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. Mr. Logan, if you'd be so kind, the first slide. So last Sunday morning, we started to look at, uh, let's see, number 55. Sir, where are we here? I'm sorry. Number 55. All right, thank you. We spent time at the outset of the message defining biblical worship. And there were four components to this, but I'm just going to give you the, the, uh, the bird's eye view this morning. Biblical worship is the response of rational creatures, and that's important. God gave in you, you and I mind, and the use of our minds is vitally important to worship. Now, yes, sometimes emotion is involved, and that's okay too. And we'll speak of that when we look at spiritual worship. But here is the response of rational creatures to the self-revelation of the Creator with honor and deserved glory. So in order for us to be rational and in order to, uh, for us to engage in reasonable worship, we'll look at some of these of what we uh, have addressed here in John 4. We look at other passages as well. So in this passage, Jesus' major principles are, are unfolded, if you please, that are essential to rational worship. Now, there are other places, obviously, we're going to be, but we're I'm going to spend a great deal of time here in John 4. The first thing is worship is a good thing. God gave us the ability to worship, so it's, it's not, not to stretch the limits of our imagination. It is to cause us to understand that the woman and Jesus both agree that worship is necessary for honoring God. So... This includes a number of components. Every Sunday morning when I pray, I say we we're going to worship the Lord in prayer. And yes, we pray in a variety of ways. We pray for those that are ill. We pray for those that are firm. Perhaps those that have been 
involved in accidents and so forth. We pray for the bereaved, and that is a, a vital component of prayer, but it's only part of the prayer involved in worship. And we find that in the latter part of this passage in John 4. We'll look at that later on. So they both agree. They arrive at something they can agree on. It's important to worship. The woman says we worship, and Jesus said, yeah, you, you do worship, and I agree that's a good thing. Matthew 15, 7. We, a couple of weeks ago, looked at this passage of Scripture, and Jesus, quoting from Isaiah, said, These people honor me. It's not that they didn't worship, but they worshiped incorrectly. So honor is part and parcel of worshiping God. Secondly, true worship is to be practiced publicly. And that's what we're doing this morning. Jesus confronted the woman publicly. She goes back to uh, the village that she's from. She confronts the men publicly. And they come out. These people honor me. That's a good thing. And it's practiced publicly. In, 15, in Matthew 15, 7, he said, these people so there's a congregation. <coughs> These people honor me. Worship is done with others in public. Look at verse 21. Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. That is important to understand that there's a time when things are going to change, and they change because I die publicly, I rise from the dead publicly, I ascend back to heaven publicly. And he says, you're not going to worship on this mountain, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem. And that is a reference primarily to Isaiah 29. We're not going to turn there. Where, Jesus, where Isaiah prophesied, and Jesus uses it here, these people draw near me with their mouths. These people, but their lip, their hearts are far from me. So there's a public understanding of worship. Now this does not preclude private worship. It is in conjunction with private worship. Turn back to Matthew 6. We are very digital in our thinking. Okay? It's either either or. Well, no, this is both and. So look at Matthew 6. This is the Sermon on the Mount, or at least Matthew's record of the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount. And he says in verse 5, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, but when you pray, but you, when you pray, go to your room, and when you've shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. 
Literally, that's closet. And your father, who sees you in that secret place, will reward you openly. And when you pray, don't use vain repetitions. Don't try to make yourself heard as the heathen do. Don't be babblers. We're going to look at that in Acts chapter 17 later on in this message this morning. Don't be a barbar person. For they think they will be heard for their many words. So that's one reference. Now turn with me to Psalm 81. We looked at this, or we read this a few weeks ago when we started down this uh, understanding of worship. <coughs> Verse 7. You called in trouble, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place. I answered you in the secret place of thunder, and I tested you with the waters of Meribah. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you will listen to me, there shall be no foreign guard among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I, he said, answered you in the secret place. Now, what God does for us often is public. I'm preaching to a number of folks this morning that have uh, been healed uh, of cancer, have been healed of some very serious um, diseases. And other things, heart disease and whatnot. But you prayed in the secret place. God answered publicly. That's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6. You pray in your secret place. You pray in your closet. I reward you publicly. Where is that done? Right here. And folks that avoid the house of God in many cases are not involved they may be involved in private worship, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus saying, is saying that true worship is to be practiced publicly. Lip service isn't true worship. Neither is abandoning the church congregation. And I read numbers of articles from individuals that have said, you know, my spiritual maturity is so far above the church that I was attending that I just can't learn anything. Well, first of all, that's a lie. That's not true. You may be um, mature in some areas of your spiritual worship, but in many other areas, like me, we're deficit. So don't lie to God about how knowledgeable we are about certain things. It is important to be part of the local body of believers. It is his body, the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm part of that body. I don't make up all the body. Neither do you. And the body is assembled. It is important that the body comes together with all of our warts, with all of our deficiencies, with all of our sin, 
so that we learn how, so that we be instructed in worship. Because we don't know how. The disciples didn't know how. Have I been so long with you, Jesus said in Luke 23, and you don't understand these things? They didn't know how. Corporate worship is the adoration of the body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We uh, celebrated the Lord's Supper here a couple of weeks ago. That's important. It's important to, be, to do it corporately. We don't do it privately. You search the New Testament. You will not find a private audience of the Lord's Supper. And that is part of the means of grace to teach us about the beauty of the body of Christ. Together, we should be in awe and have joy at the privilege of drawing near to Christ who is our Redeemer and our Creator. And we are to do so together with radical self-humility. Together. An honest confession of sin. And every single person here this morning, or those perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, have need. Everyone. We are not an island to ourselves, as John Donne wrote when the Black Plague swept over London. No man is an island entirely to himself. Next slide. Third thing, true worship is based on reason. Our minds have to be fully engaged. I want to look at a couple of these. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 23. We should be in Psalm 81, so let's look at Proverbs 20. Uh, is that Proverbs 23? Yeah, Proverbs 23. Solomon writing, verse 15, My son, if your heart is wise, he's not assuming his son is wise. Now he's writing this to Rehoboam, who would eventually become king after he passed. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart will rejoice. Indeed, I myself. Yes, my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak right things. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. For surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. Think. Where does wisdom come from? It comes from learning knowledge and then applying it. Not learning knowledge. Learning and applying knowledge. What do you do with what you learn about the Scripture? It's a, it's a good thing to memorize it. It's a good thing that we have an understanding of it, that we can recite all the names of the books of the Bible. That's a good thing. It's the application. And what happened to the Samaritans? They prided themselves on, not, on, on incomplete knowledge. We'll learn that too. But they didn't apply. 
If worship of God is good, and it is, we read Romans 12, 1 and 2 in our hearing this morning, did we not? And Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. The purpose of our salvation is to lift us to a response in worship that is similar to the God-man, Jesus Christ. We're not there. We won't be in this life. But that does not mean we are to set all of our intelligence and all of our wisdom and all of our knowledge aside. We're to use it in an incomplete worship and instructing others how to honor God. If worship of God is good, and it is, okay, it's to be practiced with other believers. And we gather from this that in order that we worship correctly, we've got to know something about God. And we have to know something before we can worship Him. Now, none of us have complete knowledge of God. But that's not an excuse. Acts 17, turn with me there. Verse 16, now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked. It was stirred up within him. He wanted to be and was confrontational. His spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. There's the word, reasonable worship. He reasoned with them. And with the Gentile worshipers, he didn't just focus on the Jews, obviously the pagans, in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? We talked about that a few minutes ago, did we not? What does this babbler want to say? Bar, bar, bar. All he's doing is re repetition. We've heard all of this before. We don't need it. We've just heard it. Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. Because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And that was indeed foreign to them. So they took him, the scripture says, and they brought him to the Areopagus. They brought him to the seat of all the intellectual wisdom that was known in the Greco-Roman world. They brought him to, if you please, God help us, Washington, D.C., now, I don't think that's the seat of all the intellectual wisdom in our country, but for example, and they ask him, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? Well, you're bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the Foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They had FOMO, F-O-M-O. Do you know what that means? Some of you do. The fear of missing out. Yeah. The fear of missing out. I'm going to miss something. That's a human, that's a human problem. 
the fear of missing. So it's not new to us. It's a human constraint. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. I love the King James, old King James. It says you're superstitious. These at the time were perhaps, there were some of, I wouldn't say they were all of them because Paul is probably more intelligent than all of them combined, but in any event, the old King James uses the word, I perceive that you are most superstitious. So intelligent people can be superstitious. And in all things you are very religious, for I was as, as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And notice what Paul said. This sounds like Jesus and the Samaritan woman, does it not? Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, the one whom you ignorantly worship. So you can't worship him because you don't know him. It matters not how many idols that you have, how many shrines to the unknown God. You don't know him, so you can't worship him. But he said, him I proclaim to you. And he preaches a sermon. And that's what you have in the latter part of chapter 17, verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. <laughs> Listen to this babble. While others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from them among them. Some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with him. So the Lord accomplished saving folk to teach them how to worship in an area that was overtly pagan and Jesus was honored and glorified. We're not in Jerusalem anymore. We're not in a religious place. We're in, for the lack of a better term, much of America today. Superstitious folk, Paul said, similar to the ones that we read about last week in 2 Kings 17. They proclaim that they want to worship an unknown God. And Paul said, how can you do that? You can't, since you're ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And so, turn back now to John chapter 4. It sounds a lot like Jesus in verse 22. You worship what you do not know. I have a gift to give you. You, don't, you didn't ask me about the gift, but if you knew who it was that was teaching, that was... Uh, talking to you, and he mentions that again in verse 26, that I'm, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one that you've been looking for. But in verse 22, he says, hey, lady, I hate to disappoint you, but you don't know what you're worshiping. You don't know who you're worshiping. I trust that's not the issue with any of you here this morning. But sometimes it is. Sometimes we just make up stuff. That's why worship must be rational. And then the fourth thing is true worship must be in spirit and in truth. And that's what he says here. You, you're not worshiping what you know. And then he says the hour is coming now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now notice what he said. True worshipers. You ought to circle that word. 
true worshipers. What does that mean? That means they're false worshipers. And this woman was a false worshiper. Now, again, give you a little bit of background here. The Samaritans were a mixed race. We covered some of this last week in 2 Kings and Chronicles. They were descended from Israelites. Uh, but also, the Assyrians had a number of the captured people uh, immigrate to Samaria. And over time, obviously, they intermarried, and that's what we have here. We have a, uh, a Samaritan, a true Samaritan was had a lineage of uh, uh, an Israelite lineage, a uh, lineage, a Hebrew lineage, and also a pagan uh, lineage. So what the Samaritans did, and we looked at this in the scriptures last Sunday morning, they accepted the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is are the first five books of the Bible. They're the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. But the remaining 34 books they didn't care about. So yeah, they had the beginnings, but they didn't have the end. And that's what Jesus is saying here. They rejected the prophets. They ignored and were willfully ignorant of the remaining 34 books in the Old Testament. Now, so let's ask this question. How do you worship without the Psalms? We've looked at a couple of passages this morning from the book of Psalms. How do you worship without the Psalms? You don't. You don't. The hymn book of the Hebrew people given by Revelation so that we might Today, as Gentiles, saved from a culture that prides itself on being irreligious, reading the Psalms lifts us to an understanding of worship. And Jesus points this out. Ma'am, I'm sorry. In fact, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say he's sorry. He says, ma'am, you're, you're just wrong. And the Spirit of God used that in her life. Next slide, if you would. So they knew the law of God. They were very legalistic, okay? But they didn't have the prophets. The law and the prophets, how they... Old Testament was identified by the Hebrews. Their knowledge of God was lacking. They were ignorant of much of God's truth, and their spiritual worship was impoverished. Not only was it impoverished, but because they only uh, believed the first five books of the Bible, it was irrational. It mattered not how many sacrifices that they killed, how much blood was shed, what was, what was performed, in Mount Gerizim, where this woman was pointing to, didn't matter. It was irrational. 
It was unreasonable. So why is the Old Testament important for our spirits? The longer I live, the, the more amazed I am at how there can be some ignorant pastors and preachers that discount the entire Old Testament. Well, it's just narrative, and we really don't need it. What we need is the New Testament. Yes, we need the New Testament. But the Lord gave us quite a bit more than just the New Testament, and there is a reason. In fact, next Sunday morning we're going to start to look at the mode of worship in the Old Testament that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, what Christ fulfilled, we wouldn't know about if we didn't know the Old Testament. And God wants us to know that. The Word of God stimulates worship. And since worship is stimulated by the Word, our minds and our spirits are raised to Him. It's done by the Spirit of God. It's done by the preaching of the Word. The preaching and the teaching of the word. The prayers, the giving, the music, all of that is part of worship experience to prepare us for the word. W.E. Sangster, who was a, a Methodist, an English Methodist, uh, and wrote in uh, about, a, not quite a hundred years ago, but in uh, maybe 70 or 80 years ago, wrote, Preaching is in the shadows. The world does not believe in it. Now, that's always been the case. We saw that in the book of Acts, but it's even more uh, prevalent today. Acts 17, we looked at that, and then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and the Stoics encountered him, and some said, we, why is this babbler here? He seems to be a set of forth of strange gods, because he pre preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Babylon is a, uh, one that is a picker-up of sea. It's bird-like. They peck. See chickens? That's what they're talking about. Paul's a chicken. Sometimes, no doubt, you think that I'm a chicken. I look like a chicken, don't I? You can laugh. All right. I'm okay with that. I'd rather look like a chicken than a cat. Anyway, pick her up a seeds bird-like. It is applied to a gatherer of scraps of knowledge, an accumulator. Let's get all the knowledge that we can. A windbag, the term of contempt for any claimer of knowledge, and that's the way it was used in Acts 17. They called Paul a parasite because that's what birds do. They look for parasites. They peck them and they're fine. We have this huge red-headed woodpecker behind our house in the, um, on the land that we live. It is larger than any crow I've ever seen. It has to be at least 18 inches. It is huge. And about a week or so ago, look out the, the doors in the, in the back of our home early in the morning and he was flying from tree to tree to tree, pecking. And he flew from uh, 
a fairly sizable oak tree to a very small tree, probably a maple, something of that nature, but the tree couldn't have been maybe more than four to six inches in diameter. And when he hit that tree, the whole tree swayed. When he pecked on that tree to get the parasites out, the tree moved. When Paul packed away preaching, hearts were moved. Is your heart being moved this morning? Yeah, it can be raised by music, and that's important. It can be raised by sharing of the gifts that God's given us. That's important. It can be raised when we pray, but it's the word that reveals God. Next slide. <clears throat> so I'm going to bring this to a close this morning. There's an English journalist by the name of Melanie Phillips who about 10 years ago was writing about Western civilization. And she's not a believer, by the way, but she wrote this. So that would have been, what, 2004, 2014, I guess. Society seems to be in the grip of a mass derangement, she wrote. A sense that the world has slipped off the axis of reason. How is anyone to work out who is right if such a, and these are her words, such a babble of experts? and with so much conflicting information. This is why we need the Bible. Robbie and I, the last two weeks, have gone to this, the time of year when we go to see our doctors for a number of things, went to the dermatologist. The dermatologist, by the way, said I had beautiful skin. All God's people said? Amen. <laughs> She did. She said, are you from this area? I said, yes, absolutely. I'm from Rustburg, which is like the chief, the chief suburb of Lynchburg. <laughs> and she said, well, for a man your age, your skin looks pretty good. To which I thanked her. So we spent a lot of time over the past two weeks going to, to doctors and checking out a number of things. And by the way, all the reports were, were good. So the thing is that we depend upon these experts, but most of you know, or you should know, that physicians make mistakes. Most of you know, should know, that scientists make mistakes. And you certainly should know that politicians, doesn't matter the flavor, make mistakes. Engineers don't do the math, Matthew. No. Yeah, they, we make them too. We make them too. How is anyone to work out what it, who is right in such a babble of experts? Talking heads. And with so much conflicting information. So if God is seeking worshipers that draw near to him with their hearts, 
and worship him in truth. Both are necessary. Believers must be careful as we engage in worship opportunities not to leave our minds in the parking lot. And when we leave this place this morning, we are to be sure that we don't leave our minds in the sanctuary, but we take what we've gleaned from the Word of God with us, and we meditate and we concentrate on it over the week. It's not my responsibility to give you some nugget of truth to get you through the week. That's not my responsibility. My responsibility is to preach the unadulterated Word of God so that that gets you through the week. If you can't rely on the truth and the reason of the Word of God, then you need to search your souls, as Paul said, and see whether or not you're in the faith. It is reasonable. This is, as Paul said in Romans 12, your reasonable, spiritual worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity we have to continue to look at your word, to learn more about worship of you. We thank you for these that are here this morning, for those perhaps that are watching, those that uh, couldn't be here for a variety of, of reasons. We thank you and we praise you for the opportunity we have with the technology to convey these messages to a lost and dying world. Our prayer, Father, is that you would instruct us incorrect worship. Father, forgive us where we, in some cases, we're just downright superstitious, and in other places, we're just ignorant. And sometimes we choose to be ignorant. God, forgive us of that. And Father, bring us back to the Word. Jesus, as he told his disciples in John 15, he said, now you are clean through the Word I have spoken to you. And so my prayer this morning is that for those that do not know your Savior, that you would cleanse them by the application, the spiritual application of the blood of Jesus shed on the cross that forgives them of their sins and then that engages with their spirit to worship you for the remainder of their mortal life. As children of God, teach us these truths, and may we apply them and live them in a reasonable and rational way. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. So we're going to sing a closing hymn here in just a moment and if the Lord's spoken to you in any way that's part that's part of worship by the way is the conviction of the spirit is the notification from the spirit that he's spoken to your heart that's the Lord 
interrupting our lives. And he certainly can do that because he's God. So we'll give you opportunity this morning as we sing. If you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, you need to make that right today. You need to have it clarified within your heart and soul. And as we sing, we can't save you. We're preaching about a Savior that can. In fact, Jesus told this woman, he said, I'm, I'm the only one that can change your life. None of the husbands that you've had can do that. No doubt you probably had children as well. But I can, and he will. He loves you, desires the very best for you in and through his son, Jesus Christ. So as we sing this morning, if the Lord's spoken to you, Make your way out of the pew. We can take you to a, a private prayer room and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. Maybe you know the Lord as Savior. You need to follow him in believer's baptism. That's part of this public display of worship. So I encourage you, if you haven't followed the Lord in believer's baptism, that you do that this day as a child of God. Pray. You pray as you pray this week, and you pray in a variety of ways, I'm sure, for a variety of persons, but pray that God would reveal to you the necessity of being instructed in worship and trusting Him and the Spirit for His direction. What number, Brother Vance? 294. 294. If the Lord's spoken to you, won't you come in?